Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched this year uh, with leading, leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provided our global conference series, the SALT Conference. And that's really to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas and people that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today uh, to welcome Natalie Molina Nino to SALT Talks. Uh, Natalie is an entrepreneur, a builder capitalist, and a tech globalization veteran focused on high growth businesses that benefit women and the planet. She's the author of Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs, and serves as a venture partner at, at Connectivity Capital Partners. Uh, Natalie launched her first tech startup at the age of 20 and is the co-founder of Entrepreneurs at Athena at the Athena Center uh, for Leadership Studies of Barnard College at Columbia University. She spent 15 years advising organizations such as DMTV, Mattel, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, during that time, she co-led the launch and the growth of a multinational technology globalization business with Lionbridge and turned it into a $100 million operation operating in 30 countries. Uh, Molina Nino advises the WOC Star Fund, Full Cycle, and Blue IO. Uh, she serves on the advisory board of the National Institute for Reproductive Health, We NYC, which is Women Entrepreneurs NYC, and Vote Run Lead. And she was honored uh, with the Schnapps inaugural Women of Wall Street Award for her influence in banking and finance and was named among People Magazine's 2019 Most Powerful Latinas. Uh, prior to founding her previous venture, Brava Investments, Natalie launched Nelly Galan's education venture called Self Made and stepped in as the CRO of Power to Fly, which is the fastest growing hiring platform for women in tech and beyond. A uh, reminder for all of you joining today, you can, uh, if you have any questions, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And we're very excited today to welcome Sarah Kunst back as a moderator for SALT Talks. Uh, Sarah is the Managing Director of Clio Capital, which is a venture capital firm that she started uh, after a great experience early in her career at a lot of leading uh, venture capital firms. And with that, I'll turn it over to Sarah for the interview. Thank you. Thanks, John. Super excited to be back. Um, so Natalie, I am so excited that you are here today to talk to everybody. Um, and why don't you, we just heard your kind of amazing bio. Um, Natalie, it'd be awesome to just, uh, you know, hear, hear how you got we hear we just heard about everything you do and that is amazing um but i would love to hear about how how you got here and then we'll go from there yeah i i want to congratulate john not just for getting through that ridiculously long bio which i didn't know we were going to congratulate you for accomplishing all those things it was hard no, enough to read it imagine doing it all i was going to say the pronunciation game is strong <laughs> Un poquito uh, español. See? There you go. There you go. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I was actually going to save Sarah from having to do that because it's just, um, it's hard for, for most people. Um, but yeah, how, how I got here is um, Boulder, Colorado. Um, I was in school at the time and um, I sometimes think that, you know, this is, uh, to date myself, this is in 96. Um, and I feel like anybody who could kind of code was getting money thrown in their general direction, right? And so I was 
Um, this is before Boulder was as much of a tech hub as it is uh, now. It was basically me and, and five dudes. And, um, and we were up to all sorts of things. And one of them was my first tech startup. And so um, I think that because anything that is sort of both that combination of both really painful and really sexy all at the same time, it is likely to create an addiction. And so it did. And so I started four more. Um, so I spent about 15 years pretty deep in the trenches of tech and specifically, as, as John mentioned, um, tech globalization. So the latest venture in the space and the one that probably um, is more my claim to fame is um, we helped build the algorithm for Google in 42 different languages around the world, right? And so obviously Google needed no help in building the algorithms in English, but once it came to Croatian and, you know, Zosa and Quechua and um, Spanish and French and Italian, you know, Hebrew and Arabic, um, that's where we stepped in. And so um, pretty deep in the trenches there for a long time, um, left tech and found myself paired up with an amazing woman, um, Catherine Colbert, actually, uh, who argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is amazingly detailed in a recent uh, documentary called Reversing Row. Um, and she kind of put a fire under me and just said, you know, you can't have spent 15 years in the tech industry and now sort of disappear into the ivory tower of an Ivy League. Um, as fun as it is to teach, you've kind of got to get back in the game and you've got to leave it a little bit better than you found it. And of course, if you look at the statistics, um, even 10 years ago, it wasn't better than I found it. We had um, results across all vectors, right? Um, especially like with women in engineering, we have half as many women graduating as engineers today as when I was starting. Um, so I didn't leave the industry any better than I found it. You could argue I left it you know, far worse. And so she inspired me to get back in the game. I didn't want to get back in the game the way that I had worked in it before. Um, and so I decided to do investing. Um, and so in 2016, um, I became a full-time investor. I launched my first platform. And I say platform because as you know, Sarah, I'm not a big fan of funds. I've been on the receiving end of traditional venture capital coming from short-term minded funds. Uh, my entire adult life at that point. Um, and I didn't really enjoy the process. I felt that there were more than just a cultural problem, which I think you and I are pretty deeply familiar with. There was also just a structural problem where even the nice guys um, are subject to a structure that I think encourages bad behavior. And so, and by bad behavior, I mean short-term thinking, things that don't help you build things that last, um, and so I decided to go at it a different way. And then um, to my delight, I found a bunch of other people who, who served as mentors and as inspirations for me who have actually been doing investing the way that I want to do it for a really long time. I thought I was inventing something new. I wasn't. Um, turns out there's a whole community of us. Um, and we all kind of struggled to articulate what it is we did. And so last year, a bunch of us got together and we were like, you know what, this is silly. People ask us, are we venture? Are we private equity? What are we? Um, and the answers were builders. So we coined the term builder capitalist. We built an organization to sort of connect us all so that we can share our best practices and so that founders can also find us. Um, and more importantly, so that we can put out into the world the idea that there is this other asset class. It's an alternative to venture capital. It can coexist. It's not about better or worse. Um, but it's something that for me as somebody who has way more experience building things than flipping things. Uh, it's just more compatible to sort of who I am.
I love it. I also love that I've known you for so long. And I think that's like the first time I've heard the whole story because I think last time we were hanging out in person running around Davos, uh, we, we did not get to those details because we were very busy doing other very important global things. Yeah. 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 That's nice code for the fact that at a party that you invited me to, I accidentally punched a billionaire. That is true. But next time, punch him on purpose. <laughs> Just joking. We love billionaires as long as they're investing in us. Um, so, so you've been a founder and investor and now you're a builder capitalist, you must just love venture capital, right? This must be like your favorite asset class and you just wanna see things go from zero to unicorn in two years and then spack out, right? Tell us, tell us how you really feel about uh, VC and, and what doesn't work um, and a little bit about why, because I think we all, clearly I've drank VC Kool-Aid and I think we all just get used to thinking, well, that's great, you got a markup, like what more could you want? You wanna mark it up as much as possible and as short as time as possible, what could go wrong? So what could go wrong? I mean, I think most founders know exactly what can go wrong. Um, I will say this, anybody who knows me is chuckling right now because they're like, oh, she's about to lay into Sarah. You know, she hates VC. Um, the truth is I don't hate VC. The truth is um, the metaphor that I used recently in a conversation that I had um, with Latin American investors, who by the way, are so excited and are so like drinking the Kool-Aid of the PayPal mafia and you know, reading all of the back editions of Entrepreneur and Inc. Magazine. Um, they want to bring Silicon Valley to Latin America. And the fact is, is in Latin America, we have a long history of building things that last for generations. Um, and so I worry that um, people perceive me as hating VC. I do not. Um, what I do think, and this is what I said to this audience, was if you were to give me a headache when I have, um, sorry, an aspirin when I have a headache, I would be so grateful. Like, thank goodness I have an aspirin when I have a headache. But if I'm diagnosed with cancer and you hand me an aspirin, we're going to have words, right? It's inappropriate to give me an aspirin when what I need is something else, right? And I think that when you look at the popularization of an asset class that, let's be really clear, represents 0.5% of all business financing, right? And of that chunk, we take 100% of that 0.5%, the majority of that chunk goes to later stage companies, not what we would strictly call startups. That's what the data shows us. And then if we take again that whole, that entire chunk of money, which again represents 0.5% of the whole industry, and we think about where it goes, it goes the vast majority into software companies. Software, period. We can slice and dice that. We can say some of it goes into FinTech, some of it goes into mobile and everything else, but it's software, right? And so what worries me is that when the shark tank effect starts to happen, when you have organizations like, you know, the media, you know, making it seem like the end all be all for all entrepreneurs, right? Not 0.5%, but all entrepreneurs is to get VC. Then you have a situation where you're giving me aspirin when that's not what I need. And not only that, but you're making me believe that the only thing in the world out there available to me, which is the part where it gets really dangerous, is aspirin, right? And so that's that's my beef with VC. It's not that it doesn't belong. It's not that there isn't a place for it. It's just that it's been misbranded as the end-all be-all. 
It has also been put out there as if there are no pitfalls, right? And there so are. Most people don't want to be fired from their own company. Guess what? If you're taking VC, you're probably going to get fired from your own company. Um, most people don't want to be in a situation where they have no control, even if they are allowed to stay, because they own such a tiny share of the company. Most people have this romantic idea of what it means when you exit, when in fact, in most cases, the founders end up getting the pretty short end of that stick. And the only way that you can counter that is by retaining ownership. And, you know, the fast track VC um, path is not the way. And I don't want to equate VC with fast because the fastest growing woman owned company in the United States is owned by my friend Nina Baca. It's called Pinnacle. It's in the tech industry. And it didn't take one penny of VC. Microsoft didn't take a penny of VC. When Bill Gates finally allowed a VC to come in, it wasn't because they needed their money. It's because they fell in love with a Silicon Valley guy who was gonna be a really great advisor and they let him have 5% of the company, which PS, they never even used that money. Um, another little software company that never took VC is WeChat in China. Probably the single largest and most important piece of software in the world today. And they were funded by a builder capitalist firm that functions in a hold co, not in a VC fund. And so my beef is really just, let's make sure that founders and the world at large, especially aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, sorry, aspiring investors, know that yes, VC is an option. It's a very specific niche for a very specific purpose. NPS, there's a wide world of possibilities that are bigger. Um, and actually in a crisis like the one that we're in where millions of companies are going under, way more relevant. I can't even disagree, even though you're talking against my book. But, but you know, that's exactly the point, right? I have conversations with amazing, you know, budding entrepreneurs all the time. And they say, you know, how do I get ready to take VC money? And I say like, well, here's your business, right? Yeah. Here's how you want to run it, right? Yeah. What do you need the money for? Right. And, and you know, the, the conversation I have a lot with founders is if I gave you a million dollars right now, how would you start spending it tomorrow? Right. And a lot of times, to your point, they don't really have a, a need for it. Right. Or the, the things they'd spend it on should be financed via, you know, accounts receivable loans or whatever else. It's just to your point, the thing everybody thinks they need to do. And I also think on the far other side of it, um, and I'd be interested to know if you have any thoughts about this, um, that right now a bunch of VC backed companies are trying to go public via SPACs because that's the new aspirin, right? If you did take VC and you're like, well, I should probably go public. And taking VC is great. Obviously, that's what I do. Take, going public can be great, right? But just because you're a company who can get those things doesn't necessarily mean to your point, you're gonna be happy on the other side of it. Um, and it doesn't mean your investors are gonna be happy. And yeah, you know, it, it, is, it is interesting how myopic I think people are about it. And I see founders who chase and chase and chase trying to get funds raised for businesses that don't need outside funding. And they're founders who would probably be pretty miserable if they took that money. You know what I also think it does? It lets the rest of us off too easily because the people who are out there providing debt, the people who are out there providing lines of credit, the people who are providing lots and lots of financial, you know, asset classes that are actually more relevant to most entrepreneurs, we're not getting heat, yeah. right? Not nearly as, heat, as much heat. And so we need to be stepping up to like, what are our numbers, right? What's the numbers for the other 99.5% of business financing? And who are they financing, right? Yeah. Are they doing the same thing that VC is doing? And by the way, yes, the answer is yes. They're excluding women, they're excluding people of color, they're excluding other sectors that are, you know, maybe not as sexy as some of the sectors that, you know, traditional financing likes, not just software, but 
you know, some of the others like, you know, biotech and some of these others that are certainly, you know, not up there with software in terms of the amount of capital that they get, but definitely, you know, up there. And so I think that that's the other thing that it does when we shine a light in one teeny tiny niche's direction, you know, we're missing the opportunity to shine a light on the others. And I would have told you a year ago that this is a thing that bugs me. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I'm so passionate now and that like my level of how much it bugs me went from, you know, a two to a 10 is over $500 billion of federal stimulus went out over the course of the last six months. And it went out in the most horrific way. It was designed from the beginning, right? To be distributed through the same banks that exclude all the same people from the loans that they already have been giving for decades. And so it was really engineered by design to exclude the same segment of the population that is the most entrepreneurial mm-hmm. um, and then needed to help the most. And so what I worry is that that was a bomb that got dropped on entrepreneurs in the United States to the tune of millions of them. And when you think about the fact that the average American doesn't have savings to last them two weeks, when the average family doesn't have $5,000 in their bank accounts, you know, that's something that makes giving people money with their in the world or what they want to do with their businesses. It went from being sort of, that's not a good idea to now going to wait, this is dangerous and it's actually going to hurt the economy. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I've heard from many founders over the years that, you know, they were building something. If it started like as, you know, something that was a small business before they took venture. And a lot of them end up taking venture because they, they can't get a small business loan, right? They literally mm-hmm. can't get a quarter million dollar loan against their accounts receivable, even if they've been running the business for a couple of years, um, especially if it's largely online. So then they go raise venture because they they need money, right? And and so that that point certainly hits home that, you know, there are tons of businesses. If you are a, a high growth software business and you want to raise venture capital, that's probably like going to work, right? But if you're not at all in those categories and you just get kind of forced into it or shoehorned into it, I see this all the time with like beauty brands, fashion brands. They have, you know, and, and it's impossible if you're like a loan officer who's like a 70 year old dude and someone's trying to explain to you, you know, how popular they are on TikTok or Instagram and you're like, what? Whereas... If you're a VC, you see that and you go, okay, you're going to be able to move product. I'll, I'll invest in you, right? But then if you're a VC, you say, okay, you didn't 100x sales year over year because you are not a highly scalable software platform. You are a beauty company. And, and so there's a little bit of that disconnect. It's almost like you need to take some of those early stage VCs and, and get them into businesses, small business loan, uh, people who provide small business loans. You know, what I've been finding though is that this is why the energy being directed in one direction or another worries me is that if those same founders that you and I are talking about spend half as much energy as they do reading every classic VC rag and understanding what Andreessen and Sequoia are doing and understanding who the players are and reading their blogs and listening to their podcasts, if they spent half that energy getting to know every single loan officer in their city, I think we would see some different outcomes. So I'm, it's not to say that there is enough of alternative capital, yeah. but I don't think that we're spending the energy. And if you see, you know, a press release about somebody closing a series A, yeah. you know, you're not even remotely surprised because those are popping up all the time. But when have you ever seen a press release because somebody landed a million dollar line of credit yeah. for the future of the company? That line of credit is so much more promising. They've not given up equity. It's non-dilutive. It's likely to be something that gets replenished all the time and allows them to really grow at a faster rate. There are a million reasons why that line of credit is happier news for that startup 
then perhaps that closing of the Series A, but you're not going to see a press release about it. So yeah. I think on our end, we're celebrating the wrong things. And on the founder's end, we're expending energy also in the wrong places. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit, you know, about with builder capital, right? Is it, is it just debt? Is there small business loans? The answer, like what, dig in a little bit about sort of the differences between maybe, you know, we kind of, we know what venture is. We, we know that, that that's not what you're doing. Um, we know what loans are. Where, where do you sit or what's the difference? Yeah. I'm glad you asked, especially the thing about the small business loans. One of the misconceptions about builder capital is that, you know, the big, or at least intending to be big companies um, that are on a fast track belong in VC and somehow the small business belong in Builder. Builder is an alternative to venture, which means that we're talking about fast pace, we're talking about high growth. Um, I'll give you an example of a recent exit from my mentor who's a Builder capitalist, um, is AppNexus, and it sold for 1.4 billion and nobody would call that a small business. Right. The other example, of course, that I mentioned earlier is Pinnacle or Tencent, or even the last round of financing to Uber came from a gold coat, not a venture fund. Right. So um, I want to dispel the myth that builder capital is another way of saying, hey, small business. We're talking about similarly ambitious, high growth, fast growth, you know, wanting to be big and take over the world kind of companies. But from an investment standpoint, I kind of see the biggest difference being if you're more of a banker and you are much more interested in playing the numbers, which is fair, it's a high risk asset class. You have to play the numbers, right? Yeah. That's what modern, modern portfolio theory is that, right? Modern portfolio theory is having you put a bunch of your energy in as far a wide a direction as you can, and then knowing that only a subset of those are gonna succeed, right? So as Peter, I only quote him ironically, so if anybody thinks that I'm actually saying that I respect him, Peter Thiel, right, calls it spray and pray. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I find just about everything that comes out of his mouth offensive, but um, spray and pray, while it's offensive, in my opinion, yeah. it is partly true, right? In the sense of like, you're spraying money in as far a direction as you can, and then you're praying that some subset of those are gonna survive. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's confirmation bias. People talk about, you know, people using spray and pray as a strategy as being really good at picking winners, when in fact, what we know is that they pick their favorites really early. You cannot possibly put a lot of energy into 200 companies, yeah. right? So you're gonna pick your winners really early, you're gonna put love and energy into those winners, and then surprise, those tend to be right the pool yeah. where success comes out of. Mm -hmm. If you're a builder, you're you're less interested in the numbers in yeah. terms of you know modern portfolio theory, and you're more interested in being an operator, which means that your portfolio is smaller. You probably have 10, 15, 20 companies, and you're going really deep with a no-fail perspective into each of them, right? AppNexus's founders um, and the, the funders who were involved, the builder capitalists early on, AppNexus was not gonna fail, right? Um, and what's interesting about having a concentrated portfolio where you're very operational is that you're also taking larger stakes. So in a whole co-environment, you're essentially structurally, for anybody, I mean, I know this, this audience is, is technical, you have a hold co and then you're raising on an SPV basis usually right on a deal by deal basis which means that if it's a healthcare company and it has a longer horizon and the time of maturity for that company is more like a 10 15 year range yeah. you've got an SPV that doesn't dictate an arbitrary timeline the way that a fund does right but then you've got another company say or security company and another SPV and that cycle is more similar to maybe traditional VC right maybe it is a 2 to 5 year cycle and that company is either going to get you know acquired or IPO 
or, you know, they'll take the SPAC route, but it's yeah. got a shorter cycle by virtue of what it is. And so the difference I would say from an investor standpoint is that if you are the kind of investor like me that sucks at being a passive investor and you need to have your hands in there because you're just an operator through and through, then you're more likely going to be happy being a builder capitalist. If you prefer to play the numbers and do uh, modern portfolio theory, um, that's exciting too. That's about quantity, right? It's about volume. It's about scale in your portfolio. From a founder standpoint, the difference between venture capital and builder capital is what you can imagine, right? You're not having a cap table that's filled with a lot of different people. You're probably not giving up as much equity, but you are going to have to play nice with this builder capitalist that's basically going to sit with you and help you grow your company. Yeah. Right? If you don't want the investors to meddle as much, that might not be the model for you. But if you really want to partner with an investor that's going to sit right next to you and help you blow up your company and make it massive, then, you know, that's the trade-off. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think a lot of founders, uh, you know, there used to be a, a thing in Silicon Valley, right? I guess it still exists called like party rounds, right? And it's like, oh, we have all these great people in. And then you pick up the phone when your phone's dying or when your company's dying and like no one answers. Like literally. Or during a pandemic. Yes, I mean, no one answers. Yeah. And, and even, you know, for me, I've been surprised. Um, you know, as a former operator, I, I always want to be really helpful to companies. I don't invest in companies if I wouldn't be excited about helping them. Um, and so it always surprises me when I'll sort of think like, oh, you know, I, I, I love that company, but I haven't, you know, had the chance yet to be super hands on. And then I'll get an email from them that's like, you're a most helpful investor. And I'm like, this is terrifying. If I'm the most helpful investor, when, you know, we're still at a point where I, I dig in a lot on marketing and fundraising and and so when we're not at those points, I'm a little bit less involved. And if I'm still your most helpful investor before I've started to like, in my opinion, help you, God help you because I don't know who else is going to. It is. Yeah. The bar is pretty low. The bar, the, the bar is pretty low. And I, and I will say again, mm -hmm. for all the people that think I just poop who VC all the time, it's not really the fault of the VC per se. It's the, it's, the model is designed to be, again, it's modern portfolio theory. It is about, you know, managing the portfolio of winners and knowing that there are going to be losses, right? But when you look at the structure, for example, the 2%, you know, fund structure allows you to have a pretty limited staff, right? And so how is it possible that somebody who has 200 companies in their portfolio could possibly do the sort of hands-on, you know, founder first, all the things that everybody has on their website that says that they really, you know, spend a lot of time and energy with the founders. But how do you do that when you look at their website and they actually have two or three principals, maybe a couple venture partners, maybe a couple associates? How do five or six people pay lots of attention and give lots of love to a portfolio of 200? It's yeah. physically impossible, right? And so I think for founders, there's a little bit of like, do the math, right? See what's actually there to support you and see what's viable and what's real and, and be realistic, right? Um, all of these different forms of capital come with their pros and their cons. And again, my beef is just, let's make sure that we educate founders so that they know exactly to your point, that person probably um, was better off getting a line of credit or a loan. Um, let's make noise. Let's talk about all of the people in the small business loan or in the line of credit space, or even in the venture debt space. Um, and let's make noise about who they're serving and who they're not serving and how they need to do better. Um, but let's not guide everyone towards, you know, this, I think, dangerous, you know, VC only world. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, the thing is, anybody who's making that commitment, right, it is 
10 times bigger of a commitment than a marriage. And, you know, you can divorce anybody any day of the week. Uh, getting, getting your, you know, an investor out of your company is nearly impossible. So to that end, you know, people, people should be super thoughtful about it. And if it's the right thing for them, great, but you should go in with a hundred percent conviction, not just sort of, it, it literally, it's funny because, you know, I'll, it, the average age of founders, which, you know, ageism in tech is, is also very much a thing, but the average age of founders kind of correlates with the average age of people when they get married, right? And, or founders. <laughs> and so you see these people who've been dating somebody for five years and then they're engaged for two years and it takes them forever. And then they go out and they raise money, you know, with, from a lead in a three week process. And you're like, you know, my opinion is like, you're probably wrong on both ends, right? You're like way too slow on one, you're way too fast on the other. Like, you know, there is a, there is a time that, that makes sense for both of these things. And like, you are off. Um, so, so I, that, that resonates a lot with me. Um, so we're going to have people drop questions into the Q and A, um, and, it and it's going to be very fun. But before that, um, we have a few more questions. And so what, I have a few more questions for you. Um, and one of them is tell us about your book, why you wrote it, what it's about, one where people can buy it, um, and everything like that. Yeah, um, I'll start with the last, which is um, timely, because we're in the middle of an election. Um, people can buy it anywhere, but obviously um, buy it at your local bookseller if you can. Um, leapfroghacks.com uh, is the website, and it directs you to all the different places where you can buy the book. But proceeds of the book go to an organization called Vote Run Lead, which Vote Run Lead um, is in the business of getting women into elected office. Um, they got Ilhan Omar in. They are responsible for training some of the most amazing people that are currently household names. Um, they have a success record that is better than any VC fund any of us have ever seen. And it's, it's their win rate is, is pretty astounding. Um, but yeah, I wrote it because if you and I just take, which is PS, a chapter in my book, this conversation around funding, around the fact that there's a world that is you know, bigger and wider than just VC. I was just finding that as a founder, I think like all founders, I inhaled every business book known to man, right? And I got to the point where I would be pretty happy if there was a chapter or two that were relevant to me and the rest was honestly trash. Um, and I don't mean trash as in like bad advice, I'm just mean not applicable to me, right? The whole chapter on friends and family around, I'm like a kid of immigrants that grew up in the sweatshops of Los Angeles. Who are these friends and family that are supposed to be writing hundreds of thousand dollars worth of checks for me? Like, and, but I, I accepted it because I thought, you know, I'm an anomaly. And then it wasn't until I went to the Center for Women's Leadership at Barnard and I was suddenly in a research institution and I was neck deep in data that showed me you know, my experience wasn't an anomaly. My experience is the experience of the vast majority of entrepreneurs in this country. And the literature out there just isn't speaking to us. The fact that we in our industry have the gall to call that entire round of financing the friends and family round in a country where most families do not have $5,000 in their savings account just shows how out of touch with reality we are, right? And so bottom line, I wrote the book because I realized that the majority of entrepreneurs were feeling what I was feeling. And I was like, what would it be like if an entire book from A to B spoke to the reality of most entrepreneurs, right? And what would it look like if all of the examples were from people like Nina Vaca, 
right? Um, so many others that have built their companies the way that most people have built their companies, right? Um, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, always retaining as much ownership as you can, being thoughtful about the fact that you're living in a world that you have to wake up in the morning and look at your neighbors, um, you know, and, and have some semblance of integrity and, you know, ethics in what you're doing. You know, most people do actually we build businesses with that in mind, even if it's just about, you know, I have a local store and I have to account to the neighborhood, right? Um, and so that was the motivation. Um, I ended up packing it with stories of like of 63, I think, in total, amazing entrepreneurs so that it's not just me giving advice, it's me saying, this is a really good idea. And P.S., here's an example of somebody who did it and you can copy them <laughs> because I think that that's the best sort of way, right? Just don't take my advice. Here's, you know, an example of somebody who did it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, that is awesome. And and what's your favorite leapfrog hack? <laughs> um, they believed my favorite one, and it's exactly what you and I just talked about, which is, uh, you know, F word, the friends and family round. I like it. I like it. Um, yes, I I agree. Um, that that is awesome. Um, and and so you know. Uh, oh, actually, let's start with questions, and then we have a few more. I have a few more questions for you. Um, but Paul Thielen asks, um, what would an ideal exit be for a builder capitalist? I love that question. Um, the last chapter in my book is probably also one of my favorites. Um, it's called the. It's, it's really about the idea of an alternative exit. Um, and in this case, and this is not my answer, that this is you know another ideal example, but it is just an example of the fact that exits have, for some reason, again, going to that topic of being myopic, we think exits are IPOs or acquisitions, and there's a world way beyond just those two options, right? In the case of Hanky Panky, which is a 42-year-old iconic brand, if there are any women on this call, I guarantee you they're probably reaching out, touching their thong right now because it is a cult. Like, Hanky Pinky, people are obsessed with it. Um, it's it's a highly successful brand, and two years ago for their 40th anniversary, they announced their 140 employees. Uh, they're entirely made in the U.S. They have an office in Park Avenue, and they're manufacturing in uh, Jamaica, Queens, that they were handing the company over to their employees in an ESOP, right? That was their exit, right? And the founders so are what, doing... What is an ESOP? Sorry, it's um, essentially handing the shares over to the employees um, in a structured, um, not really buyout, but a transition, right? Um, at the end of the day, um, the employee stock um, offering program, I believe might be, I might have the, the acronym wrong, um, which is thank you for calling me on that because I hate it when people use acronyms and they don't actually know what they mean. Um, but that's one option. I would say that for builder capitalists, the big thing for me, I always call it the third option that nobody talks about, and that is that builder capitalists have traditional exits. They IPO, and you know, a one perfect example is the builder capitalists who build 1-800-Flowers, right? The McCanns built that company. It's a family-owned company. They IPO'd it. It turns out, even despite the IPO, they retained majority ownership of the shares, and so it still very much is a family-owned business, business in many ways. It was built by builder capitalists, and it's still majority owned by builder capitalists. So IPOs are totally within the realm of possibility, and if that's what's right for our company, awesome. And acquisition, same. The third option that I would say builders are obsessed with is the thing that people like Warren Buffett are obsessed with, which is holding. If a company is growing and delivering to you quarterly dividends that you are happy, smiling all the way to the bank to cash, why the hell would you let it go? Keep it. 
Sorry, as a VC, I, I don't know what that word means, holding. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I can see your, your head exploding a little bit. Yeah, and I, and I have to say, almost every successful VC that I have spoken to about this has that story, and they usually have a lot of stories like this, but they have that one story of that one that it's like, if I didn't have a fund cycle that required that I deliver this IRR in this time frame, that one, we would not have pushed to sell or to IPO. We would have held longer. They would have probably doubled, tripled their, you know, returns, and I would have been, you know, a far richer, you know, most cases, man. Um, yes. But and, and it's interesting because you see, I think, with the private equity started to get more involved in VC because private equity, which is a very different animal, you know, is in some ways similar to builder capital towards the end, and that like they're starting to be these sort of, you know, the Vista equities of the world where they want to buy something and hold it for a while and, and make money and maybe hold it for a really long time. Um, and, and so there is an understanding of that. It just isn't in the venture class, the, the venture asset class right now. I think you're, I, I, I think I know what you're talking about with some of the folks that are holding for a little bit longer, but if you look at the actual fund cycles of private mm -hmm. equity over VC, yeah. their cycles yeah, are even shorter. Yeah. A lot yeah. of the times they're even shorter. They're talking about two-year turnarounds, right? Especially when it's yeah. like distressed assets or something like that. So that's the big difference is that um, it's, it's about cash out. It's about having the liberty structurally to be able to yeah. take one company, say, of the portfolio of companies and say, you know what, this one, we're going to hold it. And we can because our structure allows us to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Rafael Fabreas Cordero has a question. Um, are you involved in businesses related to the Hispanic market in the U.S. and Latin America? And then what is the best way to connect with you? <laughs> um, I suppose I am um, in that um, I am pretty visible in talking a lot about capital and where it's getting channeled and the fact that the single most entrepreneurial group in this country by any statistical measure is Latinas um, and uh, really close up there um, in terms of volume are, are black women and if you look at percentages black women beat everyone um, and so so you know which include obviously black Latinas so I would say yeah I mean it's, a, it's an area of interest but I I don't ever invest because of who the founder is, I invest on where the impact is. So the example that I give people, if a group of all white male founders came to me with a company that is curing breast cancer, and another group of all, say, women of color come to me with a new interesting lipstick line, um, both might be great investments, both, uh, probably deserve to be invested in, but I'm gonna choose the breast cancer one because I can fix um, a leadership team. I can fix a lack of diversity on a board. I can't fix um, a business model that has limited impact. And if you ask me to measure the impact between the lipstick company and the cure for cancer, there's a clear winner for me. You know, One of them is gonna impact the lives of millions and millions of women around the world. And the other one will probably make a handful of uh, women rich, which is great, but I'm looking for scale. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, totally agree with that. Um, well, in our last couple of minutes, uh, you know, I have I a question, Sarah. I'm raising yes. my hand. Okay, Sarah, John, you have a question. What's I your have question? A question? You have to ask in Spanish. Natalie, uh, <laughs> ¿qué impacto uh -huh. crees que el pandemic tiene con uh, personas buscando por trabajo en 
ciudades grandes y Even ciudades más pequeños. Sí. Es claro. I, I feel like I'm, I have to be the translator here. What's the effect of the pandemic on people looking for jobs in big companies? And is it versus small, sorry, big cities versus small cities? Or? Sí, uh, tiene un impacto de trayendo oportunidad por uh, personas viviendo en ciudades más pequeñas. Yes, um, I love that because I'm a little bit of I'm a little bit obsessed with the trajectory of, of cities that we have historically ignored. Right, I have a lot done a lot of work in places like Detroit and Baltimore and New Orleans, um, places with thriving economies, um, cities like New Orleans that are majority black, Baltimore, right? Um, but not enough capital has actually gone into the, the, the local community to build it out. In New Orleans, it's particularly interesting because you've got a lot of startup activity, but not necessarily the capital going into the people who were born and raised in New Orleans. Um, and so just because capital is going into a smaller city doesn't necessarily mean it's actually solving any of the problems of the city, which I would caution people to think about. But I still think that proximity to seeing capital and jobs and things being freed up to go into the small, smaller studies is really exciting. Um, and I think it's exciting uh, both from a business standpoint because that means that there are all these um, undervalued assets in cities all around the country that we as investors can start to pour money into and see some really serious upside. Um, but in terms of politics, I have to admit that's the other reason I think it's exciting, right? If we see more and more people um, who are educated at the best, best schools and who have learned to run businesses, you know, mentored by some of the best people, um, in the world, moving back to those cities or for the first time to those cities that have historically been ignored and underinvested in, then we're going to see a total change in the landscape of what the country looks like. Um, and maybe even start to see that predominantly red map turn a little more blue. That's all I got. I love it. Great, great job. Thank you. Amazing, amazing Spanish skills. I know. It's, it's like deep in the back of my brain. Once upon a time, I was, uh, I was fluent, but uh, when I'm forced to speak it, I can sometimes dig up some words, but I'd like to use it more. I thought Sarah was just being mean, but you delivered. There you go. He did it. He did it. He did it. Um, and, and there's one last question that we're going to sneak in there and then we're going to end. Um, so uh, Humanitarian Production says, thank you very much for being such an inspiration to us Latinx, especially in the current U.S. divisive climate. Question, what are the main distinctions between your approach and the traditional CSR approach? Oh, um, I, I want to give them, maybe while I'm talking, an opportunity to explain what they mean by CSR. Um, I know that corporate, yeah, corporate social responsibility, but I, I wonder if the the person asking means ESG. Um, corporate social responsibility, you know, if you think about the percentage of um, investment into the business community that's coming from corporations, so like corporate-backed venture funds, for example, it's pretty negligible. So I don't know that I would, I don't know if that's what they, the, the person asking the question really means, but I just, I, I don't know that I believe in corporate social responsibility. I think that it's, it's a wing of the marketing department um, or it's a wing of the R&D department. Um, I think the best form of corporate social responsibility um, or the best form of philanthropy, because a lot of the times corporate social responsibility programs are, are heavy on the philanthropic side. Um, in my view, the most thoughtful and the most egalitarian and participatory form of philanthropy is called pay your taxes. 
I love it. I love it. Great. Well, you did a great job answering that and you did a great job with all of this. We're so excited to have you here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then I think now I give it back over to John. Natalie, thank I just you, wish, you, I just wish yeah. you had stronger opinions, really. Um, <laughs> would have made it for a more interesting talk, but thank you so much for joining us. And Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you uh, moderating some of these talks. You bring obviously great knowledge and perspective to everything that we talk about and, and you introduce us to people like Natalie. So we're very grateful for your participation. People like Natalie who would never have said yes unless it was Sarah asking. Of so course. Sarah's an asset. Sarah, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Yeah.